Curse. Welcome to Speak and Destroy. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Chad Zamish, longtime guitar tech for Mr. James Hetfield. If you are enjoying Speaking Destroy, or if it's your first time listening, the best way you can support the podcast is to go into Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast listening platform of choice. Leave a five-star rating, write a nice little review. You can also support the show on Patreon, where you get access to bonus episodes called from my interview archives, including chats with Glenn Danzig, Randy Blythe, Kirk Hammett, and more. You can find Speak and Destroy at speakanddestroy.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we are constantly posting all sorts of Metallica-related stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. So here it is, my conversation with Chad Zamich. This is Speak and Destroy. I know that you actually started as a drummer, which isn't usually the career path to guitar techdom. Um, oftentimes, guitar <laughs> tech was a guitar player in a band. I do have a, a good friend of mine said one of my favorite quotes, and I, I use it often, which was, never trust anyone in the music business who didn't try to be in a band first. And mm. that, that uh, proves... That's probably quite 90% a wisdom, of the so. time, yeah, to be, to be true. Um, you know, that there's, I mean, I certainly couldn't imagine having a tech that doesn't play an instrument, although I suppose that exists. Uh, so tell yeah, me a little I bit. Had, uh, I had, I mean, I wasn't exposed to the, even the idea that that's what people could do for a living. You know, when I started out, I was just kind of went through the school band process and i thought oh the drums look cool and 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 sort of started there and and obviously any you know preteen teen boy who's playing drums is, wants to be in a rock band mm -hmm. uh, i assume that was pretty pretty normal so uh i did I, I went to school for a year you know college and um did some you know like jazz kind of it was kind of like a jazz school and i wasn't really clicking with it and there was a lot of stuff with theory and everything that i wasn't quite up on and i was kind of too happy to be away from home and on my own so studying wasn't like the first thing on my agenda and um that was okay because i, I found out about it and i checked it all out and um, I really envy the kids today because they have such access to all of this information. Mm -hmm. And I was a sponge back then, but all I had was the radio and whatever popped up in a magazine. And, 
surely back then there was no articles or posters of guitar techs and right uh, thankfully probably but so all i had was you know music to play and that's really what just i just knew that i was really interested in that so um i had also had this penchant for you know taking things apart you know like the the family's home stereo and trying to put it back together and Mm -hmm. how does the speaker work and all those things and i wished even back then that i would had somewhere to to go and search for the because now there's just so much information yeah if you want to learn about something or just even be exposed to to it fix something around your house you know oh here's a youtube video there's here's 30 youtube videos or you know yeah light hacks they call them or whatever but um so i I, that was you know really the only path i had was to just sort of kind of follow that dream for a little bit and I, i i it's everyone says this but if i had known then what i know now I probably would have tried moving out of the Midwest or maybe move to Minneapolis or Chicago sooner to pursue music. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of picking up and packing up my drums and going to Los Angeles or something was just seemed too foreign and too much of a risk. And I don't know. I just thought how I could never do that. Where do you now? Where are we talking in the Midwest? I was, I grew up around Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. It's been a good amount of time there. Yeah. Uh, great town. Lots of cool music and stuff. And I grew up in uh, Indianapolis. So I'm, I'm in that okay. very same parallel track with you where I, I moved to Southern California in 2001. Uh, so wow, okay. actually 20 years ago next month Mm -hmm. um which that's a crazy thought and but yeah i'm like you i I, had i had i known what i know now i would have done that way sooner you know all the things all the things that i ultimately have done as a career and had wanted to do and was interested in you know new york la there's like a few places where that stuff happens (laughs) indianapolis was not one of them (laughs) yeah and even though there's great stuff and good people and of course and and well, and, and now it's kind of yeah. flipped because you can do just about anything from anywhere, you know. And now that's how you have Joe Rogan moving to Texas, and you know all this, uh, yeah. you know, especially during COVID, where people are realizing how much is is done remotely. But I think, you know, for uh, you and I are probably around the same age, uh, folks like us, you know, growing up in places like the Midwest, doing what we want to do, we needed to be in these hubs. Uh, and yet, I've found, and maybe you found this as well. You know, my first office mate at MTV grew up in Iowa and I don't, I don't maybe been through Iowa a couple of times, but there was something about the two of us in an office together in Santa Monica, both of us new to California, where it was mm-hmm. like, we might as well have grown up next door, you know, and we just said, we're still very, very close friends. Um, I found that my strongest relationships have tended to be with people who live here, but weren't from here, <laughs> you know, um, not, not so much people in Indiana and not so much people from California, but people who moved from places like Indiana to California. There's like, Oh, we, we get each other. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand that. There's, there's been a couple of times where I joined a crew or was talking to somebody, um, you know, describing where I had come from and things. And I go, Oh, Midwest guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and they would say, you know, good work ethic and, 
yeah you know liable or whatever i'm not saying that other people aren't but yeah it there was something about that thing yeah my office mate was uh was and still is um married to his college sweetheart um so we were you know when we started working together i think he was 25 or something and and uh was married and everyone in our office was just like that's so crazy he's married he's married so young i'm thinking like (laughs) I, I, most most of my peers had like multiple kids at that point <laughs> back mm-hmm. home, you know, but in LA, it's yeah. like you, you get married when you're 40. If you ever. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's also that, that sort of um, being in the, in a certain place during a certain time, like I ended up me, uh, moving to Minneapolis, which is where I got into um, the recording music school mm-hmm. thing. Once I found that and, and was kind of discovered oh wow i can work with music and do these sort of technical things and you know fidget with gear and and do all these things that are just beyond playing the drums mm-hmm. uh, it was like i don't know you have like prince from minneapolis and you have these different vibes and there was a lot of uh, live sound engineers that i that i worked under once i discovered live sound uh, that were the guys that were kind of being sought after and they had, you know, it was kind of like this community and I sort of came from that community, which mm-hmm. carried over for a while. I don't know what it's like now, but it's, it, it's almost follows the bands in a way too. Like there seems like there's a time where, okay, Chicago is kind of hot for a while. Mm-hmm. And great, of these great bands coming out of Chicago. And when you think of Chicago, you think of these certain bands mm-hmm. and that's probably, you know, it's probably subject to our eras and our age and everything, but um, Minneapolis had a, a bit of mystique to it and great music coming out of there and talented other technicians and things that I was able to connect with and, and learn some of the valuable first sort of things you need to know to get along with people and how to speak to musicians yeah. and, you know, people that you're working for. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I hadn't thought about this before we jumped on, but talking about Madison, Wisconsin and Minneapolis, knowing that prior to Metallica, you'd worked with the Breeders and Garbage. Uh, The Breeders are from Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Butch Vig, I know, is is a Wisconsin guy, right? Or or Absolutely. Grew up there, was born there or something, right? Um, So uh, it's interesting. Yeah, like like you said, how you end up... uh, without necessarily even trying, <laughs> right? Running into people that, <laughs> these commonalities. Yeah, and, and it's just, it's a strange way how I got to work for them. Um, it is indicative of how the music industry works for technicians anyway. And mm-hmm. uh, I, it was one band that I wanted to work for because I was so proud of them being a band from Wisconsin. Yeah. We'd only had a couple up to that point. And we were we'd always kind of tried to claim cheap trick for our own as well, because they were right from right across the border, but yeah. you know, in, in Rockford, but not quite Wisconsin, but that's hey, like, that, that, that's like Illinois, Indiana and Kentucky all trying to claim Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> he was, he was there for at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, it was, yeah, it was interesting when I worked for, just to give you an idea how this goes. I, um, I worked for, uh, the band Hole, mm-hmm. and there, let's see, I'm trying to think how Billy Bush got involved. Um, 
we needed another guitar tech and management at that time, which I, I think by then was Q prime sent out a guy, uh, Billy Bush. And mm-hmm. he came out and I learned a lot from him cause he was like a real tech and I was only just trying to be him. <laughs> and he came out and became the other guitar tech and, and uh, helped me out a lot. And then he, after that, he ended up going to work for garbage. Okay. And it was this, and, and real quick, just a, a, a knowing that your drummer was uh, Samantha Maloney playing in a hole at that point, or was that before? No, uh, Eddie Schemmel. Oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah. Wow. All right. Yeah, so this was when I worked for Hole. It was uh, just after um, Kurt's death, and so um, anyway, so years later, then when a, a kind of spot came open for a guitar tech in garbage, you know, Billy and I having worked together and then I had this Midwest Wisconsin connection. I, I just, I went in and just fit right in with yeah. what was going on. Yeah. And it was, it was great. And I, I also learned a lot technically again, working for garbage because they were, mm-hmm. especially at the time pushing limits and using a lot of electronics and yeah. you know, little back things and a lot of the stuff that people are used to doing now. Yeah, uh, and you're prior to guitar teching, you were doing what monitors and like you kind of did a, a few different things, right? Yeah, your way up. when I was yeah when I was in the music school, uh, they'd had the the uh, concerts on Fridays, which is just for the students to perform whatever they had learned during the week. So they'd mm-hmm. put together little ensembles and things, and I would volunteer to go up there and help that guy set up the PA in which was the area at the time where everyone would sit down and have lunch. So I'd help him set up the PA and get the mics out and everything. And, and that started to click for me because I realized, Oh, okay, well we could do this in real time and you have a direct interaction between the band and yourself mm-hmm. and the people that are there enjoying it. Yeah. So that, that's kind of was like, Oh, okay. Wow. Where can I go do this? And, I mean, all down the road was, you know, one of the biggest sound companies in Midwest, apart from DB out of Chicago. And I just, I asked my instructors, how do I get into this? We'll just go down there and talk to them and see if you can, you know, apprentice or intern or do something. And that's basically what I started doing is taking out smaller systems, rental systems and setting them up in tents and, you know, taking like 40 bass bins to a rave and all this crazy (laughs) stuff. But learned the basics about you know being efficient working hard packing yeah. a truck uh how to troubleshoot cable management all of these things and and uh how to like especially being around people that were that were good and wanted to be good and were trying to be better mm-hmm. uh, it was it was it just i just caught on to that whole thing and then it was just by so I took a monitor system out as a, as a you know a second tech and and um, you know operated monitors for the opening acts on the Breeders tour and I uh, just got along with the band and it was the following summer that they were going to go do Lollapalooza mm, and yeah. they wanted to the changeovers are like fifteen minutes so they got to get everybody on and off stage super yeah. fast. And they were like, well, we need to add a guitar tech. Festivals are crazy enough, let alone a touring festival. I think people don't necessarily 
realize how much logistics are involved there yeah a lot of moving parts and just to get your band on and off the stage on time they needed more help so uh, i agreed to go do guitars on that and um that was my first because i just wanted to go tour at that point really i wanted to yeah. i wanted to travel because i had gotten a taste of that around the midwest and i really wanted to travel i wanted to see more i wanted to go places and i thought however i can do that i'm you know i wasn't i mean lollapalooza was in its third or fourth year by i was gonna time. say breeders on lollapalooza that'd probably be like 94 ish 93? Uh, 93 yeah 93 and uh yeah i mean it was i was like i couldn't turn down going on tour um, yeah Lollapalooza for of the course. summer i mean that was yeah. gonna be beat the pants off of doing any kind of local bands and stuff and you know sweating it out there but uh so i was i don't try it i mean i play a little bit of guitar and i can learn Mm-hmm. and i troubleshoot and i can set the stuff up quickly and take it down quickly and those are the two most so, important things right being able, being well, able to troubleshoot on the fly and being able to get in and out i would quickly. say behind getting along mm. with the people you're working for that's mm. probably the number one thing just just having rapport with people being easy to work with yeah uh, you know, because, you, you know, you're in a tight knit crew and you spend a lot of time together. And if, if somebody's not pulling their weight, it's painfully obvious. So, yeah. And I would imagine also the responsiveness, uh, especially for, you know, obviously we'll, we'll get into the Metallica thing. Uh, but for a guitar player who's also a front man to be able to read body language and eye contact mm-hmm. and, you know, to be able to anticipate uh what might be happening up there. I mean, even some of the most experienced techs you'll sometimes see, you can tell somebody on stage is having a problem or needs something, but you still kind of just have no idea what it is, you know, and you see the techs on stage kind of scrambling, like, you know, um, yeah, so there's always, almost some telepathy <laughs> that needs to be part of the job. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's always, best, it's always best when the crowd doesn't, really know <laughs> right going on up there yeah, yeah exactly um, it's yeah it's, it's like it's, it's like great exciting. editing in movies is, is the editing that you don't notice right if you're if you're yeah. if you're a great editor yeah. people don't know shouldn't know you <laughs> yeah oh, look at exactly. that editing yeah yeah trying not to be seen yeah and i'm it's thinking more from beh- behind the scenes to be fair because you know being somebody who's worked in different parts of the music business myself um yeah i'm thinking about more of those kind of on stage moments but yeah, nine, yeah 99 that, times out of 100 people aren't seeing that in the crowd yeah but but nowadays it's it's that whole you know curtain has been pulled back just with the access that people have now and mm. every, I mean, everyone has everyone has a video camera in the audience that's true unless you've left it in your car everyone has yeah. one so every cool thing that happens and any little mistake that happens or something bad like straight to youtube and there's there's a lot of access bands give a lot of access to what's going on and how the whole thing works i almost prefer when it was a little bit more i don't know magical or more mystique yeah yeah i want i I, as much as i love seeing danzig wrapping christmas presents or uh, king diamond talking about nascar you know, I also I also want to think those people live in castles and you know disappear and in, into into mist after the show. <laughs> so exactly. there is a give and take there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, and I don't you know I don't blame people. It's it's there, and everyone has to 
especially now when there's you can't play in front of people mm -hmm. as a band as an artist or whatever you have to somehow keep yourself out there in front of people and this is what we're doing or this maybe a new piece of music or something the only way to do it is through all the social media stuff and and to put it out there yeah rather than just getting your act together and then taking it out on tour and going around and it's another thing and more boxes you need to check on the overall plan you know yeah and it the other the other thing too i notice is that by it and it's, this kind of sucks but by the time you tour let's see you put all this work into pre-production and you got gags and a cool video thing and a cool lighting thing and all this mm -hmm. stuff that you have to experience live it's good for about a week because right people start taking videos. yeah and by the time you get two weeks down the road in a tour the real like hardcore fan folks are they already know what's coming kind of and yeah, if you think about something like cutting stunts which i think was late mid to late 90s or even you know going back to the 80s with you know doris collapsing during the mm -hmm. justice yeah. tour um you couldn't you couldn't have the same impact at all with those things in a social media age you would get you would get nope. night night one of cutting stunts it would be everywhere that you know Oh, yeah, they, they pretend they, they, there's a disaster. It's not real. It's yeah. a discreet gag, you know. <laughs> Guys yeah. have told me a lot of stories about that era in, in that, like the, um, you know, the EMTs and the and the ushers and all these people freaking out that <laughs> right. something was really going wrong. There was yeah. no forewarning, or it had their boss told them maybe they weren't listening or whatever. Sure. Like, don't freak yeah. Out. There's going to be a guy on fire on stage, so don't freak out. And we had to go through this again when when we did the uh, 3D movie stuff, where we incorporated mm. a lot of you know a lot of those gags over the years into that yeah. one show. And it was it it could be alarming if you just were a security guy and you turn around and <laughs> somebody was running across the stage on fire, and that's what made it so great. Yeah, you know, so. getting real visceral reactions from people in the yeah. moment yeah and yeah. i'd love the 3d movie by the way i know it was um a labor of love and one of those expensive i don't want to say vanity projects but something that you know had the potential to be huge commercially or not and it's one of those many moments in metallica's career where they tried something they did something purely for the art of it you know, purely for the, it's what they wanted to do, sink or swim. And, and they're in a position where, you know, they can do a bunch of summer festivals and, and make up that deficit <laughs> from, from doing a film. But I, I just love that they still put that much care and commitment into, into trying things. Um, even if they don't always work in terms of, you know, and, putting them in the black. And, and that's why they're not, um, you know, the greatest hits, classic rock, summer festival thing with seven other bands totally and that's kind of the only way i can explain it and and that's means no disrespect to any of those other bands at all but the their drive to stay relevant and to stay you know happy or to try new things mm -hmm. and, and do things that they're personally happy with is just it it's so much different than just doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and also so much different than the the sort of desperation that comes with 
some acts attempts to stay relevant where they're trend chasing and they're trying to keep up with, you know, kids that are 30 years younger than them. And Metallica and, somehow has found that balance where between uh, respecting and being reverent about the things about their past that are worth celebrating and being forward thinking and always in motion without, without, uh, you know, capitulating or compromising to things that don't make sense for them. You know. Yeah, like if like if we end up getting a DJ, then you know, <laughs> right? My <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, there's that famous. But, and that's why yeah. Look at ACDC because they they do the same thing mm -hmm. basically over and over again, and they but do. it's great. And that's kind and of their thing. Be, we want them to. I wouldn't want to see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't yeah. want to see a DJ on their stage either. Or yeah. it's just like just give us the raw music. Yeah. Great. That's that's you know one of the of the many great moments in some kind of monster. There's you know Kirk's shining moment when he when uh, you know it's being kicked around the idea that guitar solos are, are maybe dated, and Kirk mm. says no if we, if we don't have solos it's going to date the record to now, you know like the solo the yeah. solos are, are were cool then and they're going to be cool again and if we just because they're not cool in this yeah and and, that, and those are the give and takes and like you said the peek behind the curtain of getting to see. Um, I just love that they try everything, you know, I love that they'll, yeah. they'll just try it. And sometimes it doesn't work. And they're, they're so authentic about that, that, that you know, they're so honest about it. They'll be the first to admit when something didn't, didn't go off like they had oh. hoped, but they try it. Lulu, I mean, Lulu was really a stretch in everyone's mind, but that's good. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to, I think you, you have to make yourself uncomfortable at times or you you're just not going to grow at all you're not going to learn anything i mean mm -hmm. there's always good things to come out of stuff that you're doing you're being creative with other people so um you have to be open to what could happen i don't know and if That's that and when that idea comes up i mean certainly i don't think anyone could or should fault them for pursuing it and trying it you know because it right because that came out of them jamming with with lou reed at the rock hall shows I was like what if we did a record yeah. together kind of thing well yeah, yeah go do that you know try it <laughs> of and, course and, and you know lou reed is gone now so you don't you don't have that opportunity to even Absolutely. think about it so you got to do that stuff while it's presenting itself uh, yeah the band does that a lot something comes up and it's like, okay this is kind of what we're going to do right now things are changing I and mean, things are constantly changing in that mm -hmm. in that uh, camp and it's it keeps you alert and it keeps you active and it keeps you moving forward. And the Lulu yeah. thing, they, it wasn't like that Lulu was going to turn into years long thing and a, you know, like a sit down or like an off Broadway thing or something. Right. If it did, you know, I couldn't see him doing that, but who knows? I don't know, but you have to go find out. Yeah. And it was, you listen to the record and forget about maybe the lyrics or whatever, doesn't remind you of metallica while you're listening to it there's super heavy music in there there's i've had uh, I, i've had maybe some rip. lulu um maybe apologist is too strong lulu I, i've had lulu advocates point out to me what some of the better moments are my, my take on it i've said this on the podcast a bunch so no one's going to be surprised hearing it but i i love that they did it if I were in charge, which of course I'm not, I would have said, okay, this was a cool, weird experiment detour. 
let's put it away in the vault. And someday when, when we're in an era of oddities and curiosities and box sets and whatever, that's when you go, Hey, did you know that Metallica did this weird, you know, thing with Lou Reed, this whole album, it's been, it's in the vaults. We're going to put it out, you know, that maybe that was the way to present it. But by the, by the same turn, you know, I had Alex Skolnick from Testament on the show and, you know, he wrote a whole essay about Lulu and his thing was that he's not a fan of it at all. And yet he loves, he is a fan of the idea of it, the fact that they did it, the fact that it, um, as an artistic statement, that it was provocative, that it did create discussion, that it did upset people. And that sometimes that's the intention with art. Sometimes that's the statement in and of itself. And uh, he said, you know, on the podcast that he had an opportunity at one point to put that question to Lars, you know, of like, is, was that, am I onto something here? Are you kind of, and Lars in so many words kind of gave him the wink of like, you know, maybe that was part of it. Yeah. Like that's, you know, and knowing that Lars is the art guy, the art collector, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of a goosebumps thing for me where it's like, ah, yeah, I get, I get it. it, it couldn't have, if we had, if we had just kept it secret or I don't know, we, I mean, the organization, if they had kept it secret, then we wouldn't have been able to expose it to so many people. I don't. Of think. course, yeah. Uh, especially at the time. Well, I mean, and the fact that they got to perform with him, you know, that's me saying that without, you know, of course, knowing yeah, that we we, did, we lose Lou Reed. Yeah, I guess I think we only really did TV shows in Europe, mm-hmm. the so European shows, and the, and then of course the 30th anniversary uh, shows. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was kind of your chance to expose people to that and i think they were kind of proud of getting it together and having a final product is kind of hard to to hold on to but i do i do understand what you're saying would be yeah probably mind-blowing 10 years from now or something or some anniversary that's just kind of my my my, you know alternate universe fantasy for it and of course for that to be the first metallica project you know, for you and I to don't jump into the 3D movie and and Lulu, because uh, I'm you know I I love load, I love reload. Like I go out on a limb with you know lots of huge Metallica fans on the show who uh, they have their points where they drop off, and maybe they drop off or they come back in the catalog oh, or whatever. Yeah. Which I think is any great band that makes a catalog worthy of celebrating that you have records that are debated and it's how you end up with a Metallica podcast. It's like sports, you know, like you're talking about your favorite team and. Which, yeah. which, which quarterbacks and which coaches were the best or whatever over the years. Um, I want to jump backwards because you've been involved actually in so many uh, fascinating things and worked with so many uh, amazing artists even prior to your long tenure in the Metallica camp. And, and if I'm going too far out on a limb here, feel free to reel me in. But just thinking in like a terms of a six degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing you know, having worked with Hole and then having worked with Garbage, which of course has Butch Vig, who produced Nevermind. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a, a Kurt Cobain being a Jimi Hendrix, a James Dean, you know, even outside of music, such an important figure in pop culture. And mm-hmm. for me being, uh, see, I came of age in this unique moment where when I got into Metallica and when I got into metal and punk and all of that stuff, it was still underground enough that you were an outsider and you were an outcast. And there were just a couple of us weirdos who had a master puppets back patch. 
in your neighborhood, in your school, in your town. And then I just so happened to be of the right age, but the Black Album came out when I was a junior in high school. And so mm-hmm. this band that I had loved since seventh grade, um, you know, now all of a sudden jocks and cheerleaders were into Metallica. And then Nevermind came out when I was a senior. So then it was mm-hmm. also like all of a sudden, you know, the cool kids uh, started having green hair and stuff like that. <laughs> so yeah. I got I got to kind of witness like right that moment of this thing when it's like, it's mine, it's mine. And then suddenly it's everybody's. So, you know, I was aware of Nirvana, you know, with Bleach. Uh, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is enough that I have the context of knowing of, that Kirk Cobain was just a guy. But then obviously now this huge presence that he is. So I guess my question for you, um, you know, having been in those camps that were so closely connected to that whole phenomenon, was there any sort of, um, I don't know, vibe or, you know, did it feel like Cobain was almost kind of a presence even when he wasn't? Is it, does it, did did this come up in conversation a lot? Um, Just curious. Uh, Not really. I think, there was working for Hole and Courtney, of course. At that time, especially, was, uh, right? Yeah, at the time, it was just after Kurt's death. And it was more like the doors had opened for all of this music to walk through. Yes, big and time. Once, once that happened, it, it, it was more open to more people and MTV had a lot to do with that too. Um, they, I think that it was at the same time really where you could have enter Sandman and mm-hmm. smells like teen spirit videos playing at, during the same hour on yeah. MTV. Right. So yeah. There was, there was a change going on and I was not yet quite involved with everybody so I kind of saw that because I was playing drums in a band in high school where we were, we learned master of puppets. And I was like, what is this? This is crazy. Like the song layout is just not three and a half minute pop yeah. song <clears throat> with an AB and a yeah. C part. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then you go find this other music and it's like, wow, this is crazy. It's heavy and it's fast. And then it goes slow. And then after that, you had and i remember kind of playing like the little cover band things we had you're playing metallica and then all of a sudden we're doing like this poison song Mm -hmm. i remember thinking at the time was like i'll do it because people at the party are gonna like it yeah but i'm kind of like this is starting to go in a different direction that i not you know as far as my taste and everything goes i'm like i'm not really kind of following these guys too much and isn't that interesting where the over, where the, the overlaps go in different directions because uh, I mean and that was certainly you know Metallica had crossed over with a lot of people where maybe hair metal was their gateway and so you yeah there were cover bands in my town that would do um, a couple Metallica songs but then everything else would be Dawkin and Motley Crue and um, Poison yeah. and whatever and then on the other end of it Metallica crossed over in this other direction like my bands in high school and us playing covers we did Metallica songs and we also did, you know, Death Angel and like other thrash bands that we got into through them. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. We, yeah. And then we also got, um, you know, the first band I was ever in that actually got it together enough to actually play a show. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. we, we did a Black Flag song 
a descendant song and a misfit song. And now, uh, you know, you don't really, those three bands only sort of loosely fit. They don't sound alike. <laughs> and yet at the time it was like, you know, those are, those are three bands I would have gone to see on a building. Kind of not, uh, yeah. yeah. Or the alternative. The yeah. That you walked into. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But uh, it's, um, there was a lot of change going on in, in, you know, Kurt Cobain being the sort of, I hate to even say it, but you know, like the poster child yeah. for boom, like he's the one that kicked the door down as far as it, it kind of crossed over. And it was people saying like, wow, I don't have to listen to these glam hair metal bands anymore. Yeah. That's what it did for me anyway. Same. No, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, and even films, when you think about the kind of the indie film revolution and I'm mean, just a lot of stuff that it really, and maybe it could have been someone else. Maybe it would have been someone else, but he just happened to be the person that was at the, the forefront of leading the charge. Yeah. That, that I mean, I can't think of, uh, you know, anyone else who's more symbolic of generation X than that yeah, singular person you know he could but he also he couldn't have done that without being uh as sort of genuine and you, you know like the way he emoted everything and it was pretty wild and then you could sort of even see him <clears throat> rebelling against his own popularity with mm -hmm. like doing things that like you would think this guy shooting himself in the foot here yeah. with press media and all this kind of <laughs> making your follow up with Steve Albini or <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. But um, so I was, I was still kind of riding that, that wave, which was to me, it was like sort of taking my, whatever was mainstream music to me, that stream and really widening it. Hmm. So the the amount of people that I was exposed to and, and that was what Lollapalooza was good for too is to have lots of different kind of bands on uh, even if they were on the second stage it might be experimental things and and it, it makes it so that you know even festivals nowadays where it's okay to have you can have a um, hip-hop person on in the afternoon and then metal guy finished with a country guy or whatever you know it's it's it should be like that and and i think europe is far more open to different kinds of music than mm. in other parts of the world than we are in the states here yeah and europe stick europe sticks around there's a brand loyalty uh when they when they discover you they love you for your whole career it's not just you know yeah what's cool this year <laughs> yeah. yeah it's not there's some places in you know here in North America, you see a lot of, you know, people sometimes that are just standing there like, you know, impress me <laughs> and yeah. enjoy themselves, you know, but at any rate, when, you know, when I was working for those sort of different bands, I could have sort of gone in any direction and worked for, I ended up working for sort of more alternative female acts, you know, like Baruch Assault after that, and I, which was great because it made me be able to fit into all these sort of different you know situations i could be thrown in so i could go work for like working for the indigo girls if i can pull her opposite of mm -hmm. of um doing a metallica show and uh in as far as the genre of music goes as far as people that enjoy playing music they're the same 
So to be able to get into those situations and say, oh, sure, I'll go do this gig, you know, and not being like, really, you want me to go work? For, you know, I don't want to go work for this band. It's diff- diff- the wrong genre of music. Yeah. So I think that <clears throat> and and Kurt was sort of a big part. And, and like, I think the, you know, the the let's call them the glam rock guys were pissed off at Kurt Cobain because of that kind of just shut those guys down and stop making this yeah sugary pop and also this celebration of of excess and stardom and and uh you know this kind of dionysian like it's all a big party and then you have somebody come around who who's like no i'm playing you know best thing that ever happened for the mustang guitar right like i'm playing the shitty guitar i'm wearing these shitty thrift store clothes yeah um, yeah. even, even when, even when I have success, I, I'm, I'm troubled by it. I'm conflicted. I hate it. I mean, yeah, it was really the antithesis of that 80s. I'd rather buy my own guitar than be endorsed by a yeah. large corporation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. and, 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 and all the contradictions that that introduces, right? I mean, the, the ultimate, um, you're on, you're on the cover of Rolling Stone. You're wearing the corporate rock magazine still suck t-shirt. Um, but you're on the cover of Rolling Stone. But you're wearing the T-shirt. But you're on. You know, it's like the the the, the Ouroboros of um, alternative culture as we yeah, as so, we ascended into the mainstream. You know. Yeah, I, I think that working for Courtney right at that time was people had grown so um, emotionally attached to mm. Nirvana and the music and everything that anything related to that was pretty well sucked into that vortex and there were people that were there would come to the shows just to see the spectacle there are people that were there because they were mad that kurt had died yeah you know there's there was i have a couple instances of that you know one Lollapalooza show we did uh that was so that was 94 i did the following year with hole and we were playing an outdoor amphitheater somewhere and somebody somebody came down front to the edge of the stage with a handful of shotgun shells and set them on the edge of the stage you know that's that's pretty serious statement it's a pretty i I don't know it's still it still makes me feel bad that that happened um and for as much as as much shit that Courtney would take over everything that was around her. And she, she caused a bunch of stuff too. Don't get me wrong, but she didn't deserve to have that blame laid upon her. And she was still a separate person from Kurt. She didn't kill him. I mean, people wanted to, you know, make stuff up and it it was, it was bizarre, but it, it allowed, it still allowed, sort of alternative bands again to continue to play in the clubs until the, mm-hmm. the gig got larger and larger and larger and I, it, yeah and, and and not to belabor it but since we're we're, we're in there uh, the stuff with courtney in my mind it's so intrinsically and i felt this a little bit at the time but especially in the hindsight of the, the whole big picture so much misogyny wrapped up in that so much um mm-hmm hatred and disrespect and um, just this, this whole view of of women 
Um, you know, because, you know, when we, when we think about, all right, well, she struggled with addiction or she was, she was provocative. She created certain situations. Yeah. Uh, so did Axel Rose, you know, so does Liam Gallagher. Mm-hmm. So all these people that we celebrate as these great rabble rousing, truth telling, uh, provocative people. And, and, you know, I feel like be- as, because she's a woman, there was a double standard put on her when she did that stuff and then and and even when you think about as a rock fan what i think about so many conversations i heard over the years you know um oh this whole record uh, is great because uh kurt ghost wrote this album oh well this one billy corgan wrote this one or this you know it's like they could never you you couldn't just give her the same at that time it was yeah it was nearly impossible for her to be her own artist yeah. And that's what that's kind of what her struggle was. Like there was no way she was going to get out from underneath. And that's just, that and that's shit. and that's misogyny, right? The idea that she couldn't have written that she great had her own riff. Band. <laughs> right. Like married him and then started her own band, you know what I mean? She'd right. already been doing that. Yeah. And uh it, it was <clears throat> it was a definitely an interesting time. I mean, there were you know, there were things that I, you know, heard and and sort of witnessed and stuff that I'll just you know, take to my grave, but you know, she, the bottom line was she, you know, she loved the guy. It wasn't the greatest relationship maybe, but you know, whatever happened, happened. Um, And she, that is still, that first record is still a great record. I mean, the stuff before it is great. Yeah. I think Um, Celebrity Skin is a great record. I think she's made a lot of great music and she's had a lot of great people in her band um yeah and i think that she gets uh unfairly maligned yeah you're you're right to say that she you know well somebody helped her with it yeah it's like well (laughs) how many bands out there so that is that different than um you know madonna having the same producer for x records or whatever and where do the beats come from and where does all this stuff come yeah yeah that that gets into a whole um no pun intended a hole with a w a whole yeah it just opens up a whole pandora's box of i feel like there's just an inherent misogyny in constantly having to undermine or discredit or explain away the successor of someone like courtney love uh that is a different standard that isn't applied to you know and how many famous male musicians have dated other famous musicians or other, you know, movie stars or whatever. And yet we don't tie them to that person in, in quite the same way, you know, that we, that we do with her. So yeah, it's interesting. And you know, and I hadn't thought about it till you mentioned it, which is, which is funny, but um, that you, yeah, you did work with um, great female led groups a whole bunch mm-hmm. of them in a, in a succession like that. And, and I just, I tend to think of those as rock bands, alternative bands, whatever in their own right. And then, yeah. And then connecting those dots of like, Oh yeah. Oh wow. That is like a, a bunch in a row. And somebody like Courtney, yeah, I think also struggled in that she wasn't, she was too, um, you know, it was too much girl power for a lot of dudes, even in this supposedly progressive rock scene at the time. And yet mm-hmm. she wasn't feminist enough for you know maybe your kathleen hannah's or your you know the the riot girls didn't think that she was yeah. one of them and everyone else thought she was too much of them and i always find those to be the most interesting artists right the ones that are like 
to this for these people and not enough this for these other people. I think that's usually where the, the coolest, most interesting, dangerous kind of stuff is coming from. Yeah. It, it, to, I mean, to sort of work on that, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing. When I, when I started at the sound company in Minneapolis, there was two guys there that I ended up really looking up to um, that had just gotten home from a tour. And one guy um, had a bandage on his hand and he's the one I went out with the breeders on. And, and actually we were out on tour with the breeders when um, we got the news that Kurt had taken his life. Oh, wow. And he had just gotten off. They had just gotten off tour with Nirvana through that first uh, club tour where they really just blew up and you couldn't get into the, the clubs and, you know, Kurt had smashed the monitor board with his guitar and busted up my buddy's hand, you know? So mm. I, I went into this, <clears throat> to this building that had all this loud stuff to make loud music. And there's two guys there was Monty Lee, Mil Monty Lee Wilkes, uh, who passed away a few years ago and Miles Kennedy. So I'm like, if I'm in here and I'm working with these guys and these guys are out there, this, you know, closely connected to where it's at and what's happening then I've got to be kind of doing the right thing. So I just sort of kept following that. And one thing led to another and, you know, led to another thing. And, and this is a different Miles Kennedy than Miles Kennedy. Not the, not the singer. Not the, <laughs> yeah. not the guy, correct. Yeah, yeah, he was a monitor engineer and, and uh, continues to be as well, yeah. Yeah, one of one of those guys that starts using the middle initial, <laughs> your Howard K. Stearns and your Mark L. Wahlberg. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, man, yeah, there's so much to, to talk about. So I want to keep you forever. Um, getting you into the Metallica thing that came through um, Kirk's Tech, is that right, Justin Crew? That that was. Yeah. So yeah, I hadn't I hadn't not met Justin up until i hadn't met him until he came out to fill in for one of our guys that got sick when we were uh out doing one of the many garbage tours i was on they it's all sort of run together a little bit but um, we had somebody get sick and then somebody switched into their position and then that left a uh guitar tech position open so <clears throat> um or no did he come out no he came out and did what did he do? Did he do drums or guitars? I don't remember at any rate. So he came out and, and filled in and I'm thinking, oh, this guy's from Metallica's coming in here. And we had been all managed by Q prime at that point. Right. So mm -hmm. I worked for all, oh, they became Q prime. And then from there, like, you know, I did Veruca salt stuff that was Q prime and a couple other smaller things. So there was this kind of, um q prime umbrella thing that mm -hmm. i was kind of around underneath um and yeah so justin came out and um he filled in and and he and i got along famously and we uh, there was stuff to learn from him as well and we just we just got along really well worked together really well so that's kind of what you look for when you're out there touring and you need people that you can count on you need people mm -hmm. that are fun to be with um, it should be fun after all, all this stuff. And I have to, remind and you're spending that. a lot of time together, <laughs> you know, in those <laughs> situations, especially yeah. in the crew, because even as much time together as bands spend, they're wow. still, you know, it's soundtrack in the show. And if you're the tour, crew, you're there from first thing in the morning until last tour can really drag on when there's 
somebody involved that, that nobody likes. Not... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was, I, and then I, beyond that, then I think he, I filled in for him on a, a leg of uh, Tori Amistates uh, because I think he, he was out doing that. And then he had to go back and do Metallica shows. And then when we came through North, North Carolina uh, to the amphitheater up there, Justin came out and he had just gotten back from New York and he said, well, uh, you know, James fired his guitar tech last night and, you know, it, it's, we don't know if we have a band now and there was all this kind of stuff going on. And what about what year was this? <laughs> so that would have been uh, 2002, probably. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Sure. And because I, I know I started with a band in 2003, so there was it was probably pretty soon they had just finished doing the summer sanitarium thing in the states and were set to go to I think south america in the summer and then japan kind of in the fall and they ended up canceling the south america dates because of all the stuff that was going on and it was it was post um some kind of monster and you know so after um, so it, it was after f- filming some kind of monster, but before yeah, the movie had yeah, there out. was just there was just a ton of change going on. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Time. So 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 basically, all the things that the fans would ultimately see in some kind of monster, I think in two thousand four, two thousand five, uh, had had happened, but people didn't know it had for, happened. For right? myself. Yeah. Four gotcha. hours, yeah. For that stuff. James said, I think at that point he had become <clears throat> a little bit more careful or wary or wanted to be in more control of the people that were surrounding him or working directly for him and stuff. Sure. And he, whatever, for whatever reasons, I don't know, it's, you know, not my business, but he, he decided to make a change. And I told Justin, you know, throw my name in the hat. And from there, <clears throat> you know, uh, Q prime had already known me. So most of the, you know, upper management guys, they all, they all knew who I was. Mm-hmm. So I had, at least I wasn't just some guy off the street. And, and as an artist, yeah. that's something you want from management, right? When you were talking about, you know, being sort of shuffled around as crew in that network and that family of, of artists, you know, on the band side, you're just, you're in your own bubble of your own band. And that's something that you, if you're with a company of that stature and that size, you then can rely on them to trust. Like I, this person's been vetted. They've been with yeah, other bands and this, you know, yeah, it's like, like anything. Job like references. You, yeah. like a good plumber or a good electrician. You yeah. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. You definitely call totally. that person back to rely on them to, to get, get what you need done. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, uh, the, mostly what happens is, if a position becomes an avail- available, everyone else in the crew will take their, oh, I know this guy's great and this guy's great, call him. And they give it to the production manager or to a manager or somebody mm-hmm. and say, hey, call, I want this guy. <clears throat> and that's what happens a lot. And I think, I think James just didn't want to sort of accept whoever was just given to him based on what the rest of, of the crew, thought, you yeah. know, so, so. <clears throat> he ended up flying a few people out or having a people, few people come out to HQ and, you know, sit down and talk to him and have an interview and which is, 
Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and I I saw elsewhere that you you'd mentioned I think in a guitar magazine or something maybe that it was the first like quote unquote job interview that you'd had <laughs> a long mm. time. Um, and to have yeah. that at HQ and to be sitting down with James for the first time, uh, tell me about just that experience. And also just for a little bit of uh, contextual overview. Mm -hmm. So is Robert in the band at this point or is this yes. in between? Okay. Um, so probably 2003 we're thinking then, right? Cause yeah. I think he was in the band then. Um, yeah, tell me about that first first time going to HQ and what that experience is like just in yeah, and of itself I, I and then sitting I, down with James. I, I had gotten a, I'd only sort of had a, a kind of a feeling or a thought of like, I wonder what it's like to kind of to roll at that level. Sure. You know, like, okay, these guys definitely operate at a different level. They got their own building and a studio and everything. They got like this headquarters thing I'd heard about. And yeah. so when you're put on a plane, somebody calls you and says, Hey, you're going to go out and meet James Hetfield. You get on a plane in the morning. We're going to fly you out here. You're going to have an interview with James and we're going to fly you back home. You already kind of know you're on like a little bit of a next step up mm -hmm. situation. Right. So, <clears throat> but I, I had, you know, I had, um, <clears throat> you know, Justin was in the, you know, in the camp already. So he was just like, just be yourself, you know, wear a hot rod t-shirt and bring a couple pictures of your car and just be yourself. I saw okay. it somewhere. You're, you're, into, you're into Harleys too, right? Did I? Uh, I'm building an old Indian right now, but yeah, old, any old motorcycle. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I saw it when I, in doing my homework on you, your name popped up on some, uh, old old but yeah so i figured that there was that hot rod connection with you and, and james so yeah perfect cars and yeah motorcycles and stuff so we yeah. we had the sort of same mindset in that and <clears throat> you know i did my a little bit of research on james and and when i looked i just like searched james hetfield and came up his birthday was august 3rd and i'm like that's my birthday oh wow like, okay well, <laughs> yeah had something in common like i grabbed onto that like of course one thing i I can say undisputably that we have in common, right? Yeah, literally so, the same day. That's great. Mm -hmm. So I flew, uh, I flew out and uh, went to this kind of hotel room and just tried to relax, which I couldn't do. And then somebody came and picked me up and brought me down to HQ, and I sat in what is called the jam room and to wait for James to come back or to come in or something. And, and as I was sitting there, kind of waiting, just wondering what the hell is going on and what this was going to be like <clears throat> uh there was uh, this really loud rumble <laughs> and the and the side door opened up and i could tell that somebody was coming in on a very loud uh custom motorcycle <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Just, to, just to shake you a little bit more i was like what the hell's going on here so you know that was james uh coming back from something and you know turned the bike off and then i waited up you know, waited back there and they, they called me up front and just sat down. And there was, there was another guy there that does um, has been with Metallica for a long time, Dan Brown. And he does a lot of um, these days, he does a lot of kind of overall design sort of idea stuff. And he's a Midwest Wisconsin guy, you know, mm, awesome. Milwaukee area. And, and I had met him previously through, um, Billy Bush when we were on garbage because he'd known him through Metallica camp and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. 
we had met before, but had the, the Scani connection, the cheese connection, I guess. <laughs> <clears throat> so he was there with, and that, that kind of helped. And I think he was probably kind of rooting for me for a little bit, but it's, you know, we sat down and talked and, you know, he asked me kind of basic questions and where, what, where I'd come from and what I do. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't too heavy, but, um, you know, we just got along and, that was it and they they took me back to the hotel and i sat there and i thought oh god i'm not gonna find out for like a week or something this is gonna be horrible like, how am i gonna how am i gonna do this and uh, <clears throat> one of the um managers called me up and after like half an hour and said okay oh great you're in. great yeah. yeah man so at least i could fly home with good news and then and then it hit me like, oh man, wow! I gotta, I gotta learn a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I gotta like figure this stuff out. I gotta figure out the equipment, and oh my god! I, I think one thing that I remember that that I remember saying is, I said, I told James I was a little concerned that my image of the Metallica touring beast was like this giant train that was gonna you know i was afraid it was going to run me over and mm -hmm. he, he he said not run you over it's more like you know jump on mm. and i was okay all right well that makes sense all right i feel i feel a little better now you know because yeah. i was i had some self-doubt and I, I wanted to you know i wanted to go do this because it was a challenge and i was i was pretty getting pretty tired of just sort of doing the same thing you know taking the strings off putting the strings on mm -hmm. go to the next phase with other acts and I was about to really about an inch away from hanging it up and going to do something else. And when this happened and it, I sense it, it, it was a challenge. I knew it was going to be a challenge and it continues to be a challenge, which is the only thing that we could really keep my attention and keep me vested and into it is that it's a challenge. And a lot of the stuff we do is a challenge. And that's the band. That's a, yeah. That's what we were talking yeah. about in the very beginning. Yeah, it's it's travel challenges. When you'd have two systems, and you'd be in Poland one night, and you'd be in Spain in the morning. Mm -hmm. You know, do back to back shows and stuff. Thankfully, we don't do that anymore. But everything was a challenge, and it, it still continues to be. And that's that's just great for me because I just otherwise it's like punching the clock, and you yeah, know, I don't, I don't want to do that. So yeah schedules changing ideas changing this is out that's in you know well, you know okay you can't see the band anymore now for this whole entire summer tour you're going to be behind these huge video screens and you can't see anything <sighs> okay <laughs> you know and it yeah. all makes you better yeah are you so, are, are you in there in the um the the famous now famous metallica jam room that gets set up at every show or are you or are you off doing something else when that's happening um i i used to be we used to go in there and set some more of that stuff up and then uh we'd have to go to the stage and do things while the band was doing the you know pre-show warm-up thing mm -hmm. so <clears throat> we'd have to do changeover so we weren't able to be in there and invariably what would happen is a, a little you know combo lamp or something would give out or something would happen would break the string or something and we eventually we needed someone else to be in that room yeah it's too many too much stuff look happening. After all that stuff and yeah, yeah and, and 
pre-show, everybody's amped up and there's a lot going on and everybody wants everything right now. And, and it, <clears throat> it took a lot of pressure off sort of once we did that. And so, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a good place for them to get, not only get warmed up, but just, you got to get your head in the game. You've got interviews you're doing and this thing happened and the plane was laid and you know it, there's all this stuff going on and you have to like be able to push it all away and sort of focus on what you're doing um, so i'm glad that that particular challenge is gone what was your first run with the band do you remember what, what the first tour was so, so yeah so we ended up canceling the south america thing and we went to japan in the fall and so that was my first shows were in Japan and I don't remember if we went to Tokyo immediately or not, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty tense time at that, at that point for me as well. Like, like, am I going to be able to do this? Cause I, I'd sat at home and gone through all the songs and cause James doesn't do any of his guitar pedal switching stuff on stage. It's all done off stage by the tech uh-huh. and something that I hadn't done up to that point. So, I had to, not seriously anyway. And so at that point I had to learn all of the songs and even by then they've got a huge catalog. So you sure. have to know, somebody give me like, uh, and there were, everyone that worked there was great. Like we'll you, you, we'll you, you don't want to be, you don't want to be responsible for him not switching to the clean channel <laughs> before well, exactly. the famous whatever part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you still don't want to be, but uh, it, it's uh, a, <laughs> it um, it was quite a learning curve. So by the time it was all sort of coming together, um, add the crowd and the, the super loud music and all the stuff going on, crazy stuff, pyro and everything, and trying to like remember where I'm at in the song, plus get the next guitar ready and all this, mm-hmm. you know, 15 things going on at the time. I was like, holy crap. Uh, it was definitely a challenge. And it took me a little while to settle down. I'm looking at uh, at 2003 dates right okay. now, and yeah, I see that um, Tokyo Dome or something. Yeah, there it is. Um, November sixth and then November seventh, which was my birthday. So your second, your second right. ever Metallica show was on my birthday. Yeah. All right. Um, also, also the birthday of uh, it was funny. You were, you're saying that when you have that birthday in common, uh, Rob Cacciano, the guitar player in Volbeat, who. Uh, Okay. You probably met at the big four shows. You know, he was an anthrax back then. Um, but yeah, him and I have the same birthday. <laughs> okay. One of those things that just came up. Yeah, so we would have missed because this is just my own, you know, personal our own our own ships passing in the night. I'm trying to see where the show was. I actually I've, I've interviewed Kirk a handful of times. He's always been awesome. I've only gotten to interview James Hetfield once, and I actually had. I'm, all, I'm just now looking at the date for the first time because I never remembered what when it was. So, August 2003. So it would have been just before you came on. Um, I we were doing. Make a very long story very short. Uh, Kurt Loder had conducted what ended up being one of, if not the last, interviews with Johnny Cash that year for a piece that ran during the pre-show for the VMAs. And I helped produce a companion piece that went along with that, which was artists who love Johnny Cash talking about Johnny Cash. So I interviewed Chris Cornell and Tom Morello 
uh, who were doing Audio Slave at the time about Johnny Cash in LA. And then uh, Hetfield and Kirk were also included in that piece. And the closest that Metallica was going to be to New York or LA for someone to talk to them was Salt Lake City. So MTV flew me out to Salt Lake. I used the local news crew and it was, you know, an audio guy and a camera guy and me. And I got to go into the jam room before the band was in Okay. and uh, kind of move stuff around to set up our interview shot. And of course I'm, you know, I'm a huge Metallica fan unbeknownst to anyone who's coordinating this. So, you know, picking up Headfield's guitars and moving stuff. And um, yeah, I got to, got to spend 30 minutes talking to James and Kirk about Johnny Cash. Uh, and it was great. And I love those kind of interviews also where there's a, a, a singular focus and, you get guys who are used to talking about themselves all day, who get an opportunity to talk about someone or something that they love instead. So yeah, it was a yeah, great interview. It was a lot of fun, but yeah. And, and, and one of my, uh, I, I try to be one of those people that doesn't have regrets. Cause I like to think that everything led to the next thing and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. I have any regrets, it's definitely I, because of the schedule with MTV, I had to be back on a plane before the band even played. And after the interview, Kirk was like, Hey man, what are you, you know, stick around for the show? I was like, mm-hmm. Oh no, they got to send me back. And he was like, ah, he's like, you should, you should tell your boss that we pulled some rock star shit and you couldn't get the interview till after the show and, you know, stick around. And, and such a, such my, <laughs> my mid, my Midwest do-gooderness, right. Was. Yeah. 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 That I, can't, be I, honest. I, can't, I cannot tell a lie. Yeah. So. That's one of those things I look back and I'm like, oh, why didn't I do that? Kirk Hammond asked me to stay and hang out. And I didn't. If I'm not back in the morning, I'll be fired. Yeah, like, exactly. Yes, yeah, sometimes you got to go for it. You got to go for it. I should have gone for it. It, w- it would have been worth it. Even yeah. If, no matter. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but that was my that was my one story. But that must be our ships passing in the night. Because yeah, it looks like you, that was in August of 2003 and your first show was November 2003. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had been hired. Yeah, I had been hired. um just after that i think that was i think they had gone to do something at finish at some a club in new york and the name escapes me right now they'd done a club show to sort of cap all that stuff off for some reason i'm not sure why but it was you know way too much gear and way too small of a place and and they all went home the next day so yeah the uh bowery ballroom looking at it right now yeah there you go that was wow that was really close because that was still august um, yeah. So then I was hired not long after that. Amazing. Um, so I got to ask you just a few years later, mm-hmm. Metallica does only happy when it rains, which is one of my favorite uh, Metallica covers of the many Metallica covers and one of the oddball <laughs> oh, Metallica covering garbage. Um, that had to be somewhat surreal for you. <laughs> right. Where, where did we do that? Bridge school shows, I think. Oh, really? 2007, maybe. They've, they've done it a few times, but I think that was the first time. There's one of there's one of the bridge school things. I wasn't there. I think I was. I think I was working for another band at the time. Okay, I just looked it up. 2007 bridge school. That's when they did it. So you you weren't there for that. That's even that's even crazier that that happened and then you weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's entirely possible because by that time, of course, both Justin and I had worked for the band. So, 
it could have been possible that somebody threw that out or who knows what that that was i mean of course that's kind of where i was going with it too like was that your idea (laughs) i I don't i don't think so i probably i probably remember more about it if it was my idea yeah it it feels like it was probably like like turn the page my guess would be that that was a uh okay they've only ever they only ever performed it once according to their website i love how they have all this stuff on their website by the way um so that was a one and done. I felt like they did it again more recently. Um, James might have done it himself. Yeah, 2007 Bridge School. Um, I think he might have done it solo after that. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just that one 2007 show. And what month was that? Uh, October. October. Let's see here. October. They did. Uh, Please don't Judas me. I think that was the first time they did that. Also, Brothers in Arms. Like they busted out some new covers for that. Hmm. I don't see. I don't see any dates. One here. Oh wait, I'm in 2008. How can that be? Oh no, no. Nine, ten, four, oh seven. Boy, I don't see any. I wonder if they just didn't. If they did it with a skeleton crew or something, maybe they. Because I don't have um. I don't have anything in, in my calendar. It's it could be before no, let's keep in the calendar then. Hmm. I don't see the I don't see the British school thing on my on your on your old itineraries? Yeah, they may have just back then they may have just said, Oh, we're just gonna take Zach or something and or somebody that's local and we're just gonna go bang this out. Well it's so it, 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 it nevertheless it's so funny considering your whole um yeah. Life, life story and career that yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 and we're talking about all these connections and the way things happen you know in many many ways of course garbage and metallica would seem to be on far away ends of the spectrum and yet uh somewhere in there there They're was not. a uh, yeah 100 crossover metallica doing a garbage song um and did it great it's yeah. it's they really it's one of those covers like they always do where they really make it their own um so a couple of things I know I've kept you a lot longer than I said I would. Yep. Uh, a couple of things, if you'll indulge me. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk just a little bit about, I, I call it Hetfield's right hand. You know, I haven't made merch for the podcast yet, but my idea is to make, you know, Metallica adjacent because I don't want to do Metallica merch because not only is that not legal, it's also just not cool. Uh, but mm-hmm. but I want to do something that's like a head, the right hand of Hetfield. Because that comes up so often, especially when there are guitar players on the show, is James Hetfield, the rhythm player, arguably the greatest. Um, And certainly I would say that the style of guitar playing that he and Dave Mustaine pioneered even in the early, early days. um, uh, You know, we talk about Kurt Cobain opening the door for this whole alternative culture. I think Hetfield's right hand opened the door for a whole style of guitar playing that was has transcended and has carried on. So uh, for you as, as somebody who's right there in, in the thick of it, um, what do you think it is about 
him as a player, as a rhythm player in particular, that that is so innovative, transformative, so essential to that the sound of the band. I just would love your open the floor for your thoughts on that in general. Him as a player, I my I guess my perspective that I gained over time was that James is like the guitar player and the drummer in sort of wrapped in one and he loves drums he likes to play the drums when he can like at home and stuff so spastic children yeah he he he's a bit like me where i still come from that from the drums side of things musically uh and so that's that's a way for him to to be have the rhythmic part to be able to sort of play the drums and the guitar at the same time and that's kind of it's very boiled down but that's it's pretty much what it is and for the most part everyone kind of follows james on stage kind of where he goes and moves and stuff uh musically and it it's all sort of comes down to that i don't know it, it's it's kind of inexplicable but and i'm used to kind of watching him do it but it, i don't know it, it's like i i can't do it i i try i can do it for about 30 seconds and i have no idea how how he's able to do it for two hours and 20 minutes or whatever it's really it's really um admirable it's it's i don't know <laughs> it's and a bit inexplicable but we, sometimes when we come back from like a long break or something we'll they start out with something that's not crazy you know just to warm up and get familiar with each other and stuff they won't play anything super fast you kind of have to ease into it but there's a couple like one or two days you know james is he'll kind of shake his arm a little bit like oh i gotta you know i gotta get that back and it's just i i i can't believe how quickly it it comes back to him he's just it's amazing to me it's, that i don't know I think you really hit upon something with the drummer thing. Cause yeah, of course. Yeah. He, he, he's a drummer as well. And I think that that explains a lot too, because this whole style of rock of metal really employs guitar as a percussive instrument. You know, when you think about the mm -hmm. way that it evolved into like Meshuggah and stuff like that, where it's just, yeah, the guitars are, yeah, they're just drums in a way um, as opposed to the sort of more. Yeah. Yeah. Because each one of those, really fast call them 16th notes they're all down picks do, 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 so they all yeah. sound the same yeah. <clears throat> and you have the low end of you know the bottom end of the note that's just is like a punch in the in the gut if it's if it's correct yeah and it all has that sort of high end scrape of the pick when the pick hits the string it has those two elements sort of in equal amounts then you're getting closer to what that sound should be and yeah people people search that out a lot <laughs> yeah and it's interesting too i think one of the great misunderstandings about and justice for all and the way that it was recorded and the way that it sounds and the tones and the down picking and everything is you know people always talk about how we need to put the bass back in the record and i think that's without realizing there's there's nowhere for it to go <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you if you have that open on a computer in front of you and you're like, I'm going to put some bass guitar in here. Where? <laughs> yeah. you know? 
<laughs> it's not a, lot of, not a lot of room down there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's pretty heavy. Yeah, you know, I I still kind of remember, you know, hearing like "Sad but True" or something. Yeah, and yeah. It's, the, it's the big open house. You know, it's the big jug jug. You might as well be hitting a drum kit. Mm-hmm. It's just it's so heavy and so major. Yeah, and that's like, and I love. I remember way back in the day when the Black Album was was breaking through and kind of crescendoing. And it's in an interview with Kirk, I think it was. Pretty sure it was Kirk. Where you know he was saying, you know, yeah, for people saying that like we sold out on this album that it isn't heavy. Like, have you heard "Sad but True"? It's like, yeah, that's like maybe the heaviest riff ever any band. You know, so yeah, the heavy. It's a popular for other bands to, you know, even like uh major bands that come open up for us or whatever there's a lot of times the you'll hear the guitar player he wants to play that riff you know like yeah, yeah. i know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i had uh, one of my one of my very good friends um who's been on the show uh cc the drummer for the band blackville brides they did an album with bob rock a few years ago and okay. the, I remember the funny story him telling me um is thinking about sad but true uh, him telling me about one of his first conversations with bob one of those producer drummer combos and bob saying so what kind of you know drum tones do you like what sort of references what records do you like and cc was just like the black album like you know like that'll work just, just do that do that thing you that thing you yeah. do uh, so yeah. yeah that's how that's like the touchstone drum sound uh-huh. and and rhythm and uh Every yeah, sad but true. It's like that's the that's the, that's the playbook. <laughs> yeah. What but what's interesting is I think one thing that people don't maybe really know to to the the players that are listening, his James guitar sound is not. It, it's a metal guitar sound, but it is it is probably more rock and roll than it is a metal sound and when i say metal I'm, I'm thinking more of you know metal in the last 10 years or 15 years um it's it's very easy to get you know like a big smoothed out sort of low-endy chunky sound by adding too much gain and it's really it, it just makes it really easy to do that and it makes it fun to play the guitar because your your amp is doing a lot of that work, but mm. <clears throat> when you pick up James' guitar and play through it, it is it is big and it is heavy, but it is not what you would consider like a super metal sound. It's not yeah. over it's not overdriven. And any time that I've tried to sneak a tiny bit more gain in there, because it makes it easier to play, mm-hmm. he he'll I, invariably he'll come off stage and go, ah, "This sounds a little gainy." <laughs> you're like okay fine and i I put it right back where it was but you could also like for me my playing style which is bad uh i i can when i pick up his guitar i can play most any sort of rock and roll riff that i know and it sounds good and right and big and heavy and everything um and that would be really hard to do with a typical sort of modern style heavy metal guitar sound Mm -hmm. It makes total sense. Yeah. And, 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 and that goes back to my theory, I guess, or my, my thesis about the right hand of Headfield, that it's the hands are doing the work, you know, it's not, 
Yeah. And it just makes yeah. you more in awe because you just like, you know, how does he, how does he do that? How does he do that? With yeah. that and know? I think it, you know, to liken it to sports, it's such an athletic style of music. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we haven't seen, you know, we see, we have the Rolling Stones, we have Paul McCartney, we have these great rock artists who are generations ahead of Metallica who are still doing it, but we have yet to, they'll be the first to demonstrate how long and how far you can push it. Yeah. You know, how many more decades, <laughs> you know, it, it's athletic. It's just the, the, the physicality of performing that stuff. Uh, your hands, your shoulders, and, and, your necks, you know. And and they and they still love it. I mean, if even if they had to whatever, slow things down a couple BPM or something, mm-hmm. you know, it wouldn't be it, it wouldn't it wouldn't make that big a difference. And yeah, they they want to keep doing this. And that's that's the thing. Um, as long as they can physically do it, I think they're gonna keep doing it. Yeah, and that's, that's what's exciting is to see how long it on and on and on you know because it feels like it's there's the end is very 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 far in the distant future yeah and there's certain bands you know um i'm thinking about megadeth i think they tuned down half a step or something to accommodate just the natural change in a voice or whatever and that kind of stuff doesn't bother me at all you know it's like yeah do what you you know recalibrate a little bit so we can still have this thing that we love you know and i think yeah i was I, i saw james point out in an interview that three out of four big four singers have had neck surgery <laughs> you know, oh really him and mustaine yeah. and tom from slayer have all, <laughs> all had <laughs> uh, you know major neck and back stuff and it's like yeah, yeah we you know what when head banging was invented no one thought well, what's this what will this do to someone after you know 200 yes. nights a year yeah. for 30 years <laughs> 20 years old and you're invincible you know yeah. <laughs> exactly so yeah i love that they're they're the template they're the they're the four horsemen. They're the uh, the the guidebook for all the rest of the community to to follow and see, you know, how this works. Yeah, and they, how you can keep doing. They, it. they they still have a lot of relevance, especially with any of the bands that that we end up working with uh, around or whatever. If it's um, if it's award shows or festivals and things mm-hmm. like that you always see this kind of this kind of starry eyed guitar player musician or somebody kind of come up at some point during the day to look at the equipment. And yeah. It's like, oh, aren't yeah. you the you know, guitar player in the band right before us or something? Mm-hmm. And they, they're all still, there's like still a lot of people that are really just enamored in awe, really just like, Oh man, this is, this band is why I got into music and you know, they all just love, they want to know about the gear and, and things like that and it's they just they want to stand on the side of the stage they want to be close they want to watch it and they're they're around their heroes and it's it's nice to be able to to work for somebody like that where people still enjoy them so much that are that are your peers yeah and man and that well perfectly well said and that is the that is the mission statement of this podcast the whole idea of doing a podcast that's interviews and conversations about Metallica is because it's a conversation that comes up so naturally with my my friends and I and being this you know someone who's a journalist and someone who works in the music business um it's just always coming up and it's exactly as you said and sometimes even from surprising places I actually just scheduled a conversation 
for an episode with a girl uh, who uh, is a TikTok star and was getting crap because she's wearing, do you see this story? She's wearing a Metallica shirt. And- yeah, people are are showing that are sending that to me hey what do you think about this and i'm like yeah. awesome yeah because the people were like oh this, this this hipster this kid wearing this metallica shirt she doesn't know and then she's like oh i don't know and then she comes back with a guitar uh yeah I'm, actually, I'm gonna have her I on see, i didn't see the uh, the original video was she actually playing guitar in the no video? she's just i think she's doing something totally different but she's wearing a metallica shirt uh, so he, and people he, did the like Look at this poser uh, wearing this Metallica shirt, and she saw the that, that awesome. and then came back and said, "Oh, oh, poser!" And yeah, I so. saw the rebuttal. That yeah. was great. That makes it so much better than yeah. Yeah, I, I, re- I reached out to her a couple of days ago, and she's like, "Oh my god, I would love to come on a Metallica podcast. I love Metallica." This, yeah, so I'm gonna have her on. Yeah, this part of Miley that Cyrus. <laughs> Miley Cyrus is yeah, doing right. Metallica covers right. record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. And it, it, part of the experience of working with this band is to find consistently still that they can book a show in the middle of a field in some Eastern Bloc nation you never heard yeah, of and yeah. sell out immediately. I mean, that tells you those, those little things that tell you like this band is still relevant. They're still happening. They're, they are not, you know... They're not working at the uh, Holiday Inn, you know, the Shamrock Lounge at the Holiday Inn. Yeah. Trying to make, you know, and I've, it's, I've seen Newstead celebrate that a lot in interviews, as he should, that Metallica, mm-hmm. that a, a lot of places in the world, Metallica were the first band to show up, like you said, and set up in that field in that obscure province of some country somewhere and and be and show up first and draw the crowd first and open the door for other bands to then go in and now there's a market there you know yeah some of the more remote locations you'll see um you pull into town and you start seeing black metallica shirts walking by you go out you know leave the hotel like the day before the show or something and it's just like you just know this town is overrun with people that are taking the plane, or the plane, or the bus, or whatever, to get from their remote location to this location. Yeah, yeah. all wearing their Metallica shirts <clears throat> to get to this place, and they just they they come to the town and they all spend their money and do the thing and have a great time, and it's 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 really fun to see. I mean, my yeah. I I injured my shoulder on stage actually a couple of years ago now, and feels like in my shoulder surgery guy, my doctor, I was just, I saw him for the last time. And every time we end a, like a checkup, you know, doctor's visit thing, we're talking about music and guitars. And he, he's like, Oh yeah. So I saw this interview with Kirk and I saw this thing and I heard <laughs> things of this or that. And how's it going? And you know, when do you think you're going to be able to get back to touring? And you know, it's just so great. It's everywhere. And, I, and you know, and that was one of my, as someone who didn't grow up into sports, you know, one of my favorite memories of even going to first night of the SNM two show and the, the way the train takes you right to that brand new venue and drops you off right there. You know, my buddy and I, who's also a, a music journalist and, you know, he's an attorney for one of the major film studios. And he and I went to the show, we drove up together as we're going, you know, as you're getting closer, closer to the show, you're seeing that more and more Metallica shirts and this and that to then by the time that you're on that last 
part of the trip, the last train that goes right into the venue, the entire train, it's all, it's your people, you know, we're all, and then I'm like, this is why people love sports. You know, it's like, we're all in the Jersey going to the game or whatever, because everyone's got their different metallic shirts. And, and sure enough, I'm standing next to a guy who's wearing, I love when they do the localized merch for the shows and somebody's wearing an Indianapolis Metallica tour yeah. date shirt with an Indiana oh. Pacers thing. You know, I'm like, Hey, that's my hometown. And, you know, and that camaraderie, yeah. that community, and that idea that, especially in a time when uh, things are so polarized and everyone's in their different bubble and everyone hates everyone else. Mm-hmm. That, that the love of the music, the love of a band like that, the love of those songs that it can, you can feel, you can feel that sense of community for a few hours where all that other stuff's left at the door and we're all just Metallica yeah. fans, you know? And you can you can certainly feel the vacuum right now too, and that's that's across all genres of music. Is yeah. that that is this it is one thing that is is universal. I mean, it's you know I know it's a cliche to say, but it's sorely missed. And I don't know, it's people need it. People yeah. need to get out there and get together and experience live music and have fun and let their hair down just let it all go and i don't know it's it's sorely needed to return and what i think our industry is going to be one of the last ones to come back unfortunately but it's it's one that needs to come back very very soon yeah i'll tell you even with lawn chairs luckily we have a great drive-in that's that's been in operation and, and refurbished uh in montclair mission tiki which I, a place i'd actually gone to a lot before already uh but going to that drive-in show and not knowing what to expect or how that's going to roll out and it was just, it was for all intents and purposes it was a metallica gig you know people were singing along yeah. on their horns and in the lawn chairs and uh yeah it was a lot of fun and it was sort of like yeah, there was we a all, guy that had, you know, yeah this guy that had a pa and half a pa on his truck and generator and in our monitor engineer bob Cowan, he he did the same thing when he went he had <laughs> some of the pa the band used the same brand on the smaller version he has and he had check this out send a picture and he's got a generator and the whole thing and just crank it up turn it up oh, let's sick. go yeah. yeah and it was like sold out the one i went to and it was like multiple showings i think there was another showing oh, wow. <laughs> after after the one i went to so uh well chad thank you so much for doing this man I, i'm and sorry to keep you for You're so welcome. long i'd love to have you back sometime there's a million more things to talk about in metallica world i know this is an episode people will love to get that um you know it's i've had folks who've toured with the band and in other bands and uh, mm-hmm. worked on their records and, and all sorts of things, but to have that, that vantage point from uh, right next to Papa Het, that's uh, it's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty special. So thanks for doing this. And well, uh, anytime. Yeah. We got and, that. Now we got our, we got our Midwest rapport going here. Exactly. <laughs> Dude, it really, man, there's just something about it. And it's, and, and I, and it took me a while to realize it's not people from the Midwest and it's not, there's, it's, it's more, it's more about people that where we, you know, you know, th- th- there's the cliche about nice place to visit, wouldn't want to live there. I feel like the thing about the Midwest is it's a great place to grow up and a great place to be from as you go out into the world and see more of it than some of our Midwest brethren do. That's it is the problem and, with and, the place is when people never leave. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I used to have a bit of a 
thing about that. You know, my older brother, he, he stayed there in the same small town, lived there and the whole thing. And it wasn't until after I had kids and gone out and seen the whole world and everything. And I came back and I started looking around my old hometown and I was like, this is a pretty good place. Exactly. Pretty I'm, place I'm, in, I'm, I'm in that kids. place right now too. <laughs> I yeah. can bring my kids, bring my kids here. You don't have to lock your front door. Mm. Generally speaking, you know, that's just like, oh, okay. I see the appeal here now. I could. Oh I could yeah. Definitely come back and I definitely here. see the appeal of, you know, my condo in orange County, uh, affording me a McMansion back home. <laughs> I definitely see the appeal of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're just next. We're in Atlanta, in this suburb of, but attached to Atlanta, and oh. we're actually looking to move outside of town because my daughter's really into horses, and uh, you know, I just want to get. I can get more from the money out there, and we can. Yeah. Get more space and have neighbors further away. <laughs> I actually, actually lived in Atlanta for about six months. It was my first oh, okay. attempt at leaving Indiana. And I only lasted six months and ended up back in Indiana in 1995. But yeah, I was in a suburb called Doraville. Okay. Um, it was just uh, on the north, just north of Atlanta. But yeah, I love that city. It's cool. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Decatur and we're going to move oh, gotcha. south, south of the city, kind of where the new, uh, where the uh, film studios and stuff are. I mean, sure. It's all, really- all the Marvel yeah. stuff is there and CW and there's so much stuff. Yeah. Down there, but Awesome. Um, well, yeah, yeah man. If, if I could be a say one, one last thing to everyone. I just Please. hope that everyone, everyone stays safe and safe and healthy. And I hope, you know, be nice to each other. That's about all we got. That's all we got. And that's, um, it sounds, it's one of those, Sometimes the simplest explanation is the correct explanation. The Akram's razor, I guess, is that what does that fit in here? Just be kind, be nice. Yeah. Listen, listen more, talk less, listen more. That's uh, hopefully that's yeah. what we're contributing with our podcast. It's an opportunity for people to <laughs> sit back and listen <laughs> to us. Yeah. And hopefully, hope to God we'll see you at a show soon. <laughs> <laughs>